the War Nomads podcast. It's not your usual travel podcast, it's everything for the adventurous independent traveller. Hi, my name is Kim and welcome to our podcast delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand covering more than half a million travellers. Now, my fellow co-host is Phil. Hi there. And, mate, where are we off to this episode, episode nine? Uh, Kim, we're going to Peru, an extremely biodiverse country with habitats ranging from the arid plains of the Pacific coastal region in the west to the peaks of the Andes Mountains. Yes, and we will touch on both in this episode when we chat with Effie, an Inca trail guide who offers some alternative treks to the very popular Machu Picchu, which is arguably the biggest drawcard in Peru, but Phil's being overrun with travellers. Yeah, and Amy Schwartz from Unleash Surf, a company that allows you to work while you surf, plus Hamish Black, Dr Hamish Black, about vaccinations for South America. And we ask, is it true there's a parasite in the Amazon that swims up your stream of urine? Yeah, there's no we in this, you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all that to come and more, but in each World Nomads podcast, we kick off with Phil's quiz question. Pretty simple geography question today. The capital of Peru is Lima. But which is the second largest city? The answer will be at the end of the podcast. Our first guest is Matt Lacey. Now, Matt is a British actor and comedian and he is best known for his role as Ben in the BBC TV series Cuckoo and Orlando in Gap Year. It's a comedy sketch and it went absolutely viral around the world. In fact, his pronunciation of Peru became a global catchphrase. Let's just have a little listen in case you haven't heard it before. That really reminds me of this time on my gap year. Yeah, I was in South America, in Pará. Pará. No, Pará, darling, Pará. Peru. Oh, yeah, yeah, Pará, Pará, yeah. Wonderful country, you know, beautiful people, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, uh, we were trekking in the Andes and the sun was just rising and glinting off the snow, creating this sort of ethereal haze. And I really got a sense of the awesome power of nature and the insignificance of man, you know. And then I just chundered everywhere. I was like, all over the snow. I was like, have that nature, one nil. <laughs> yeah. I so love that. Pura, darling, pura. <laughs> Matt, thanks for being part of the show. That YouTube clip, by the way, has had six million views. Wow, is it six million? Um, yeah, no pressure. Uh, it's funny hearing it back. I haven't, I, haven't, uh, I haven't heard it for a while. Um, no, I didn't. Uh, and to be honest, I think if, uh, if I had known, I would have... Put it on my own YouTube channel and not the guys who filmed it. <laughs> um, what was the motivation behind it? Oh, it's all written from life. I met a lot of people at university um, that sort of had spent a year vomiting all over the developing world. <laughs> we very keen to, to tell everyone about it. Um, and I mean, there's, there's some amount of sort of, dare I say it, self-parody. I'm not... I, I don't live in Fulham, but I did. Uh, I did actually go on a gap year and um, went to Peru. Well, I didn't pronounce it like that. <laughs> so, so yeah, Peru, Peru, darling. Um, what did you think of Peru? Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I ticked some fairly um, normal boxes, you know, going down to Cusco and doing the Inca Trail and stuff. But you know, they're popular for a reason. Did you chunder anywhere? Um, 
I don't. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I managed to keep the the deep fried guinea pig down oh. um, as far as I can remember. I couldn't go there. I tried that there. I couldn't go there. And you, no. you, you did it, did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it's a cliche, but it tasted like chicken. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, sort of the brown meat of chicken. Where else have you been around the world? Oh, lots of different places. So um, after the the gap year thing broke, um, the Telegraph serialised my book. Um, by the way, that's still on sale for, for the, the hardcore fans. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, after they serialised it, they sent me to South Africa to live on a lion reserve. I wrote a fantastic puff piece about it. <laughs> um, so that was fun. I've most recently been going to Europe a lot just because it's quite easy. Yeah. Um, so so most recently I've, I've sort of, uh, my most interesting trips have been based around weird festivals. And um, in Europe, that is, there are an absolute plethora. Um, so I, I, I recently went to one in the Basque country where they string a goose cadaver on um, on a wire and then loads of boats run uh, go past it. And the locals try and jump onto the goose cadaver <laughs> as it gets flipped up and down into the air. And um, if, they, <laughs> if they fall off, they lose. But if they manage to hold on and thus decapitate the goose. Um, <laughs> Generally, if you if you scratch the surface with Spain and the Basque Country, every small town will have some sort of weird festival that you can go to. Um, you know, some of them, they replaced the dead goose with the rubber goose, I think, for animal rights <laughs> reasons. In the more ethically sound towns yeah, of exactly. Basque Country, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you should, I, I reckon you should go to the one in Japan. We, we've got a film. Uh, we covered it on World Nomads. Uh, it's the Naked, mm-hmm. Man, Naked Man Festival in Japan. Yes, I'm there. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, men they, only. They go off to that island and, and all get naked. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I read about that. Yeah, there's this really strange. So there's like, you know, thousands of men just wearing loincloths, basically, inside this temple. And like the priest lobs a stick into the crowd and then they all fight for it. And the one person who picks it up and puts it into a receptacle gets, I don't know, you know, good luck for a year. So it's like this thronging mass of like, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred semi naked blokes. It's amazing. When I went to Japan, I am. Um I particularly remember the the onsen, the the hot baths, which are amazing. But but some of them really don't have the capacity for the the naked men that want to get into. It. I was nearly sort of, well, to put it bluntly, sort of had bits swung against me by an elderly Japanese man <laughs> trying to get into the plunge pool. Was, uh, yeah, so I, I I I guess that's probably good training for the naked man festival. <laughs> Thanks so much for having a chat. It's a real pleasure, particularly as a fan of Orlando, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) No worries. We'll have that clip in our show notes for you to see in full, plus links to where you can buy Matt's book, The Gut Yard Planner. Phil, when you mentioned we were doing a podcast on Peru and then you said, hey, I want to follow up with a chat on surfing, I I see you see, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Peru and surfing? But... 
they go hand in hand. Well, a massive coastline there as well. And, well, you know, nothing between Peru and, you know, Asia, basically. I know, but I just didn't think. And uh, hence we got in touch with Amy and she's going to educate me and perhaps everyone else that's listening that wasn't aware of this fantastic surf culture in, in uh, Peru. Hi, how are you going? Good, how are you? Well, I'm well, but I'm feeling a little... Uh, not underwhelmed, but undereducated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Feels right, you know. It's a massive coastline. Tell us about this surfing culture. Sure. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's it's one of these places that is not necessarily on everybody's kind of surfing travel journey map. Uh, it's it's but in terms of like South America or the kind of Western Hemisphere. It's um, it's probably like the Indonesia of of Latin America or or North and South America, because it does have this long coastline, um, and it's broken up by a fair number of kind of point breaks, which means it, it, you know it, uh, the swell comes in and kind of breaks gradually along a point, which for a surfer is generally kind of the ideal setup for a wave. Not all surfers will say that, but. But most of us, I think, <laughs> would. So Peru is really sort of well-designed. Most of Peru gets waves literally every day of the year. It's, it is a very, very rare day when it's flat. So it's, it's pretty special in that sense. And sort of what sort of, you know, quality surf, which are you talking about big waves that you get there, or is it, um, you know, always smaller or varies? Yeah, great question. It Again, it depends. It's usually... Yeah, I don't want to talk, make it seem like kind of the land of the perfect way, but it's often like just kind of the perfect size. So I'm not sure what you use in Australia, but in, in Canada, we usually use feet. So it's usually between like three and six feet on most days. And where we are right now, which is Wanchaco, which is just kind of eight hours north of Lima. So it's sort of in North Peru, but not super north. Um, it's got... It generally has like a good size swell that's good for almost any level of surfer from kind of beginner to intermediate. Um, but then if it does get really big, there's other spots that you can go to that kind of hold a bigger swell. Wanchaco became a world surf reserve partially because of um, its history, which again has this kind of culture, which is actually a fishing culture. So they, they, they build these big old um, boards out of what's called tortora reed so it's just a, a reed that they cut in the swamp and then um, and they use them kind of like a stand-up paddle board but it's considered they've been using them at least 3,500 years so um, so that's part of this kind of original or this very old ancient history um, that several civilizations have used um, that kind of make it very significant around the world um, as the, the origin of surfing. So that was part of the reason why it was um, considered significant enough to become a world surf reserve. And it's got a really kind of alive um, surf culture in the sense that you have these, these, this traditional surfing um, or fishing craft that is considered the first surfboard or original surfboard that you see going in and out of uh, kind of the surf break every day. Um, and then you have, you know, surfers surfing 
around these kind of very traditional ancient uh, surfing crafts. So it's a, it's a pretty special atmosphere. There's nowhere else I've ever been that has this kind of living history along with kind of modern surfing. All right. Amazing. But I've got about a dozen questions to ask you there. <laughs> I'm just going to backtrack a long way. 3,500-year-old um, surfboard. surfboard, history from there. And what does a Peruvian surfboard, that's the, the reed thing that you're talking about. Is that right? Yep, it's called Caballito de Tortora, which means basically like seahorse of the reed. So the reed is Tortora. Are Peruvians claiming surfing? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, um, you know, there's a long, I, I would say the modern history of surfing has really held on to this idea that, that you know, modern surfing came from Hawaii, which... Don't quote me on this, but in the 80s, when um, the first the first ISA world champion, Felipe Pomar, who now lives in Hawaii, actually, but he's Peruvian, kind of brought an um, evidence of this to Surfer Magazine and did a big article on it in Surfer Magazine and, and you know, stirred up the pot about, so where did surfing really originate? And if you can, if you have evidence of this, um, civilization using this kind of a board 3,500 years ago. Well, it's uh, it it definitely shows it's older than than the Hawaiian tradition. Let's just pause, Amy, there while we check in, fill with our world nomads. What do you like about travelling? Oh, my favourite part about travelling is meeting new people. And what about you? I guess running into stuff like this. So, so do you find that when you are a traveller, that people are more likely to approach you? Yep. What about you? What do you like about travelling? Um, mostly just, you know, the girls, the partying, you know, getting into the new culture, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. Just, you know, getting fucked up, basically. Well, I have picked guys that are, that are drinking a, a, a few brews and have their musical instruments out. So let's, I reckon we'll finish on that note with a bit of whatever you were playing when I interrupted you. Amy Schwartz from Unleashed Surf, who has just given us a rundown on surfing in Peru, including its amazing history. But if you're a surfer, then Amy has an incredible opportunity for you. We've been coming to and from Peru. We're from Canada for about, I don't know, seven, eight years now and uh, and surfing lots of different waves up and down the coast. And uh, and we really fell in love with this place I mentioned already, Juan Chaco partially because of this kind of long, old surfing tradition, which is still very much alive, but because the wave is really accessible to all levels of surfers. So two years ago, we were here, and my partner was um, working remotely. He has a web design business, and we were just kind of thinking about, you know, what's next in, in life, and we we were thinking about, you know, we would, we would love to take other people who can work remotely to a place like Juan Chaco where you can um, you can have really great Wi-Fi, you can surf literally every single day of the year. And if it gets too big here, then you can take people to Chicama, which is um, a world's, or, uh, the longest left in the world. It's about an hour from here. So when it gets really big here, it works really well there in Chicama. So you've got lots of options for waves in the region. And we thought, well, and also the other thing about Juan Chaco is you can walk to everything. So we were like, this is the perfect place to kind of just hang out for a month, get your work done, but also every day before you work, go out and surf. 
And then at lunchtime, you can go out and surf. And then in the evening, you can go out and surf. You can surf with your, your face off all day, but still you get your work done. So we decided that we would um, start a business where we basically take um, people who can work remotely, but want to have kind of a more, uh, a more fulsome uh, surf lifestyle um, and bring them here. We set them up with everything that they need. So we get them a private apartment um, rather than kind of a, a hotel room. We want them to feel like they're really living here. So we get them a private apartment, surf lessons or surf coaching, um, Spanish lessons, yoga, and then we do um, either surf tours or other kinds of uh, trips and tours on the, on the weekends. Um, and so we, we provide that for people either for two weeks or for a month um, so that they can, or for two months or three months, <laughs> so that they can really um, basically live their dream surfing lifestyle. We'll have links to Unleash Surf plus pics of that three and a half thousand year surfboard in our show notes. But Phil, I reckon it's it's time for travel news. All right, here it is. A severe drought in South Africa has created a doomsday scenario with Cape Town expected to run out of water in April. Taps will be turned off and people will have to collect their allocation of fifty gallon uh, sorry, fifty litres, that's thirteen gallons, per person per day from government controlled distribution points. City officials are warning that the place could descend into anarchy. They're seriously planning for the military to take over the streets. It could be ugly. Uh, So let's cross our fingers and hope for rain. By the way, the average American uses 80 to 100 gallons a day, so they're going to be down to half of your usual allocation. Wow. What else is happening? A group of Western travellers have been arrested and face a year in jail in Cambodia for dancing pornographically at a nightclub in Siem Reap. This happened at a popular pool party event called Let's Get Wet. This is the best bit. Police arrived around 4pm. <laughs> it's not even midnight. It's not even midnight. <laughs> Good work. Police arrived about 40pm and started rounding people up. Then there are reports that their authorities have been targeting expats wearing bikinis in public and attending pub crawls. I'm pretty sure I'd get arrested if I was wearing a bikini in public. I reckon then, you would, definitely. Yeah. But you call an event Let's Get Wet and what, what do you know the extent of the dancing? I've seen some photographs. They were... they were, Yeah. <laughs> no, they're all fully clothed. They're all still clothed, but they are, you know, doing simulated sex. Okay, now, no one would argue that a guide dog is allowed on a flight. I hope not, anyway. But the definition of a service animal is being stretched in the US so that several airlines have tightened up the rules. And what's prompted this, you might ask, Kim? What's prompted it? How about the, quote, large mixed breed dog that attacked a passenger (laughs) leaving facial scars? Or the brown pig... The companion animal on a plane that defecated in the aisle, <laughs> or the emotional support animal that was refused boarding recently, which was a peacock. Oh, yeah. Not the little brown innocuous pea hen, the peacock, the one with massive spreading you tail. You can't make as this a companion up. animal on a plane. No, so they're cracking down on that. That's You've made this memory. up, seriously. <laughs> I you, wish you take a pig on a plane and it does a poop. <laughs> That's and a surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, the massive CES Consumer Electronics Show was held uh, last month and there were some very cool travel gadgets on show for the first time, including a mobile VPN and Wi-Fi device. VPN, virtual private network, it stops somebody snooping on your online activities. So mm-hmm. that can be uh, used while you're on some of the you know Wi-Fi hotspots around the world, which are not necessarily always secure, so you can look after it. Uh, look after your own security. Look for the we.stream, 
We Stream device. The Smithsonian Magazine has listed 10 anniversaries worth travelling for in 28. Despite the awful grammar of that headline, we all love a flimsy excuse to travel, don't we? So do any of these whet your appetite. The founding of New Orleans 300 years ago. Or you can go to Venice to celebrate the birth of the Renaissance painter Tintoretto 500 years ago. Uh, how about North Carolina, where in 1718 the British Navy attacked and sank the Sloop Adventure, killing the pirate Blackbeard? And how about going to Howarth near Bradford in the north of England, where they're celebrating the birth of Emily Bronte 200 years ago? Wuthering Heights, uh, her most famous... Uh, novel of course and the christmas carol silent night was performed for the first time 200 years ago near salzburg in austria so they're 10 anniversaries worth traveling some of the 10 the other ones were just too boring (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks for that Phil, the Inca Trail is being overrun and there have to be some worthwhile treks in the area that are an alternative. This guy apparently knows them. Now, I'm hoping that I pronounce your first name correctly. It's Efran? Efrain Valles. We knew we'd get it wrong. <laughs> Us Australians are so bad at putting the, you know, that just that little twist to make it, everything sound sexy. <laughs> okay, Effie, you can call me Effie, it will be easier, but my name is Efrain Valles. Okay, so it's true, the Inca Trail is getting overrun, Effie? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, uh, there is a 500 people a day starting almost all together. Uh, there are some ways to avoid them, but uh, most of the people, they would like to do the Inca Trail in four days, so all of them start together. They camp in one place all together. They, they walk almost all together. Of course, the landscape is amazing. Uh, uh, the biology, the nature in that area is amazing. But uh, after four days hiking with many people, it's something like uh, you were not really in the place that you were thinking you will be. We as a guys and myself as a guy, we are upset about it and we are trying to find some type of solution for this or perhaps looking for options or alternatives. Well, this is what we wanted to talk to you about because I had heard about Chocuequero, which is um, very similar to Machu Picchu and not that far away. Is that right? Chocuequero is very well known as the sacred sister of Machu Picchu. It was abandoned for quite a long time. Uh, the government doesn't really put attention much in that place. But recently, the mayor from uh, the different communities around, they are trying to talk and uh, restore the area with the, gov- with the help of the government. UNESCO is also helping there. They are trying to build a cable car, but it still is a project. But the, the hike is amazing. Uh, the site is unbelievable place with a lot of terraces, with uh, amazing uh, platforms, houses, temples, waterfalls. I really like more that place than Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is amazing. The land, the surroundings, the mountains, of course, is a new, one of the new seven wonders. But it's the only place where I have seen a condor, like a three meters right in front of me, going to the highest point of Chokikirao, right at the platform. Where else in the world are you going to see the condor three metres right in front of you? No, absolutely. There. I'm not sure okay, if I want to see the condor three metres in front of me. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Effie, tell us then <laughs> about some of those other worthwhile treks in the in the area that that ideally have some of those amazing ruins at the end, like Machu Picchu. You can go to Choquequirao, then you can connect to Vilcabamba through Bitcos. Vilcabamba was the last the last shelter, the last capital of the Inca Empire. Spanish were here 
in 1533. Can I can I just ask you about Choque Kiro again? So he just wanted to say. I just again. wanted to say the word because I think I've got it right. Yeah. Uh, how so? Because it, I mean, that's a, that's you're going up and down a fair a fair height a few times there. So how many people? You say you've got you know what seven thousand a day at Machu Picchu. How many people are you getting at Choque Kiro? Okay, I was there so many times, and sometimes I was there alone with my group. Wow. Okay. I found sometimes a couple of groups. Now you can see, sometimes you can see 50 people, sometimes 60, but I don't think so more than that. I haven't seen never, ever in that area more than 60 people in a day. Can I ask you two more questions, all right? Just two more. I'm sorry. One of them is the uh, the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. You know, some people do you know two what three day trek. How fast can you do it? What's the fastest you've ever done it? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you really want to hear that? Yes. <laughs> okay, the first time the four days Inca Trail because you cannot do it, you cannot do it in three day in three days. Four days. The rules are you buy your tickets for four days or for five days. But the fastest I did the first time was six hours <laughs> with a runner from Scotland. The second time I did it was in three hours and 45 minutes. Oh, come on. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Four hours and 20 minutes. But the record is three hours and 45 minutes by professional runners. So yeah. My final question for you, Effie. Tell me, sir. No problem. Anyway, as <laughs> much as you want. Machu Picchu, Chocoquirao. Have you got another one? Is there another one you're not telling us about? Vilcabamba is getting quite popular. On the way, you can see a mountain called Veronica, 5,700 meters in front of you, snow cap. You arrive to 4,300 meters, the highest point, all the way down to the cloud forest to enjoy coffee, tea, uh, chocolate, banana, mango, orange, mandarins, all the fruits, pineapple, papayas, all the way down to the jungle where we produce coca leaf as well. We produce all the all the fruits we have in Cusco comes from that area. You see the landscapes also amazing, rivers you can do, rafting, biking, lots of activities. Then you go to Vilcabamba, the last capital of the Inca Empire, the last shelter of the Inca Empire, where the last Inca was killed. In a, in a day, you can see no one or somebody, but no many, no many groups, less than Choquequirao. Then we have another one called Lares. Lares is an amazing hike. People who, used to, who still speak Spanish, uh, sorry, Quechua, our native language, Inca language, who still live over 4,000 meters producing potatoes. Llamas and alpacas up in the mountains, supporting extreme temperatures, wearing typical clothes, living without any money in the area, but they still do the share. You know, give me corn, I give you potatoes, give me this, I give you that. The landscape, the mountains, and they wear typical clothes made by them, textiles. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. The trek is called Lares. Thanks, Effie. And if you would like him to be your guide trekking through Peru, we will show you where you can get hold of him in our show notes. Now, we love having people visit the World Nomad Studio, and this time we have Hamish Black about vaccinations for South America. But, Phil, you've got a question you want to kick off with? I do. Dr Hamish Black, I've got a very interesting question for you, but before we do that, can we explain? (laughs) He knows what it is. He's already laughing, all right? 
Can you explain what it is you do at World Nomads? You're part of the emergency assistance team, correct? Yes, Phil. Yeah, lovely to be here. Um, my role here is to manage the risk on the, um, I guess you'd say, um, not so much the proactive side, the reactive side. So when people do get in trouble and they call us at World Nomads, um, my role is to make sure that the clinical risk in particular is being looked after. So uh, we have callers who um, do need to be moved by air ambulance or they need to come home for some reason um, or they're not sure whether they're getting appropriate care and we have to try and um, make sure that that clinical risk is being managed appropriately. And sometimes it is quite dramatic. People do have to be moved by air ambulances and put on planes and brought home. Um, But often it's just making sure they get to the appropriate uh, provider in their location. I was in Peru a couple mm. of years ago mm. and I did go down into the Amazon basin mm. and along the Madre Dios River mm. and we were all told that you can't uh, take a leak into the river, you can't <laughs> urinate into the river mm. because there's a parasite that will swim up your urine stream. Mm. Mm. True or false, Dr Black? Yeah, Phil, um, <laughs> you... Uh... An idiot? <laughs> <laughs> It is probably an urban myth, I think. Okay. I mean, you could imagine possibly if you were weeing while in the water that something could get in there. But again, you know, the force... You're not helping me. Now it sounds like... (laughs) It could happen. It's a myth. All right. Peru in particular, but South America in general, Mm. do you need vaccinations before you go there? Um, Look, the answer for anywhere is yes. Look, the sensible advice is to get your health looked at before you travel. There are people who do need to get vaccinated, depending on what you're doing when you're travelling, of course. I mean, if you're going to travel at all, you need to be vaccinated with your primary immunisation course as recommended by the government. That's the first thing. And there are people who haven't had that done. Is there anything specific then to South America or Peru? Um, Well, I guess the yellow fever is the one that um, people think about with Africa and South America. Um, And there are parts of Peru that it's recommended that you are immunised for. I guess most people are just going to go to Cusco and Machu Picchu and, and possibly Lima. And in that part of the world, you don't need yellow fever. If you're, you know, are going to get out of those areas, then in general, you probably do need yellow fever. And yellow fever, that's kind of a tropical disease. So we're talking about in the Amazon basin, places like Manaus and Puerto Maldonado. And <laughs> well, I did that one just for yeah, kids. Yeah. That was my Spanish that's accent. Well, Terrible. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm Thank impressed, you. Phil, because you've been there. Um <laughs> Most of uh, uh, Peru uh, in the um, non-altitude regions have yellow fever. Can we talk about mosquitoes? Malaria and dengue fever. Mm. Malaria, first of all. Mm. I would be having a conversation with a travel doctor if you're going to be away for a period of time and you're you're at risk of getting bitten by mosquitoes. Again, if you're in urban areas, then your risk is pretty low. So... Dengue fever, though, I know like we we get a lot of yeah. people who contract dengue fever, not just from South America, but from all over the world mm. as well. Mm. You have a lot of dengue fever cases coming up through uh, through EA? Yeah, we do, actually. But, um, you know, the ten- it tends to be a little bit seasonal, a little bit of, you get little outbreaks. Um, that is a, I mean, that's another one. There's no vaccination for it. There's no, no there's nothing you can do to prevent it except not get bit. Um, Hamish, just getting back to your role as medical director, mm. right? Now, often you're dealing with people who've called you and they're in a bad way and they're on the other side of the world. How mm. difficult is that for you mm. to be able to assess what's going on from the other side of the world? Well, we, we rely on two things. First of all, a conversation with the person who calls us and that's 
uh, best done by our medical team. So it's myself and there's two other doctors and uh, four nurses here. And correlate that with the medical information we get from the hospital. If we're going to do something about that situation, if we really think someone needs an upgrade in their care, if they're concerned about the level of care they're receiving, then we'll generally talk to the treating doctor about, about moving them. If you have a health concern while you're travelling, you're a world nomads customer, can, we, can they ring you up and just get a bit of advice? Um, yes and no. I mean, um, I guess it's difficult for us to provide the sort of advice most people really want, which is therapeutic advice. But we do want to know what's going on um, because we don't want you to get sick while you're travelling. Or if you are, we want you to get well and then travel on, I guess. So if something does swim upstream into my willy, I should call mm. you anyway? That's what you're saying? I'll leave that for you to sort of <laughs> Actually, I did, I did hear, I mean, this is part of um, the urban myth as well, I'm yeah. sure, that men in the Amazon, when they do go swimming, wear a tourniquet over their penis. Is that right as well, <laughs> to stop this from happening? <laughs> I wish someone had told Phil to do that. <laughs> it has to be really tired as well, apparently, Phil. Well, thanks for joining us in yeah, the studio. Pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Well, we've just about finished episode nine of the World Nomads podcast, but everyone has been waiting for the answer to your quiz question, Phil. Yeah, the capital is Lima, but the second largest city is Arequipa, with a population of 850,000 people, which is not that many, really. I mean, you know, Peru, big country, none of, you know, like Lima's only a million and a bit. So there's yeah. no sort of like mega metropolises like you have like Mexico City. So, you know, it's a really, a really traveller friendly kind of country to go to. Yeah. And after this podcast, I'm putting Peru uh, on the list of places. It's to just visit. a round the world ticket, really. Isn't it, it is. That wraps up episode nine. Subscribe, rate, share on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. And now we're also on iHeartRadio. How yes, cool is that? Fantastic. Contact us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. Next episode, Phil, where are we going to? We're going to the US of A. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.